well, when I was about um, 10, I think, I watched the movie Work, Burke, Work and Bills. No, Burke and Wills. Anyone seen Burke and Wills with, um, who was the famous guy in it? Nigel Havers and oh, Aussie, Dinky Die Aussie. His name escapes me. No, Paul Hogan, I wish. No, unfortunately. Um, it was, um, anyway, some guy. Yes, Jack Thompson. Thank you very much. But I've got, I've only really got one scene that I remember from that movie and it's Burke and Wills and, and they see just like you do on a really hot day, not in Armadale, but in Tamworth, on the horizon, on the hot road where the condensation comes along and, and you're like, there's, there's moisture over there and they're in the desert. They're exploring. They're the people that in 1860 to 1861 tried to travel from Melbourne to the Gulf of Carpentaria and lost um, their lives in the process uh, through starvation. But they're, they're there and their, their lips are cracked, their skin is dry, their hair is dishevelled, they have no shoes, everything is tattered and awful and they see the moisture in the distance and the relief that comes on them and then obviously they run and find that there's nothing there to be found. Uh, it's just a mirage, it's this awful just scene of desperation and then contrast that with when um, you're a kid and you're going through the bush and it's a stinking hot day and you come across a real water hole. And uh, now in Tamworth, they're brown. In Armidale, they're clear. But um, beautiful flowing um, water holes. Um, Mark might not go there because of the eels, but the rest of us would go and, and get in that water hole and splash around and be rejuvenated and revitalised. And just the fun as a kid that you had in the water holes. I remember as a kid on our farm... And the neighbours' farms, um, I would just go and I, it, it, I could not see below the surface. There was, without the shadow of a doubt, animal carcasses at the bottom of those dams. I didn't care. Get amongst it. There's probably heaps of minerals for me in that water uh, to be able to swim in. The, the idea of a fresh, revitalising water hole. And yet there's something in between that I'd love us to look at this morning. Uh, we're going to where the people of Israel were through the desert. The people of Israel had been in Egypt for um, hundreds of years, enslaved. Uh, they come out. Um, it's a mighty work of deliverance. There's no fighting. There's no battle that they have to usurp and overcome the establishment. No, they just walk out of that place. Uh, they camp at a place called Succoth, but because it was the start of the journey, it didn't Succoth too badly, and they kept going, and they got to um, Etham, and uh, then they camped at Migdal, and then they hit up against a sea, and at that point um, was where the Egyptians, it was three days, and they looked around, and all their grieving, there's this horrible um, scene in the Bible of the, the people crying for their children as the children of Israel are walking out. They've now grieved their children. They've gone, okay, well, it's time to bury them. Who's going to bury them? The slaves. Oh, the slaves. Let's get the chariots and go get the slaves to come and bury all our dead. And so they go and, and you might know the story that the, the sea parts. It's what we just sang. He turns seas into highways. The children of Israel pass through the sea and the chariots that follow, it folds back on them and they're never heard from again. And then they get to the desert. They're out in the desert. And three days, they're in the desert. Verse 22 of Exodus chapter 15, it says, Then Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea, and they moved out into the desert of Shur. They travelled in this desert for three days without finding any water. When they came to the oasis of Marah, the water was too bitter to drink. So they called the place Marah, which means bitter. Then the people complained and turned against Moses. What are we going to drink, they demanded. So Moses cried out to the Lord for help and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Moses threw it into the water and this made the water good to drink. 
He then laid out some expectations. And then in verse 27, after leaving Marah, the Israelites traveled on to the oasis of Elim, where they found 12 springs and 70 palm trees. They camped there beside the water. So we have the idea of a mirage that is off in the distance that has the promise of water and nothing there. Then we have the idea of water that promises and looks good, but is too bitter and is unpalatable. And then we have the water of Elim. And I wonder, as we have our focus for this year, as the Chapel Collective, as Armadale City Church, that as we look at this and becoming an expansive, pioneering Acts 2 church in our focus on water holes, watering holes this year, and you've got no idea how hard it is to not switch between water holes and watering holes. We actually worked on that, asked a few people, they said, you can't say water holes because that makes everyone think of the Lion King. And what's so special about a water hole? And, uh, and so we went with watering holes. I'll tell you when we get there. No, okay. Um, <laughs> Disney. <laughs> Keep preaching, Bron. <laughs> and so they and, and and so watering holes, if we're to be watering holes, the question would be this morning, what kind of watering hole are we going to be? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what kind of watering hole do you want us to be? Because Lord, we want that. More than anything else in our life, Lord Jesus, we want what you want. And Lord, if we're not there, Lord, we want to want to be there. So Lord, just Get everything out of us, less of us and more of you, because we want to mean something. We want our lives to mean something, Lord Jesus. And Lord, meaning is found in you. So we surrender ourselves to you this morning. We submit ourselves to you and we say, have your way in us, Lord Jesus, and make us what you want us to be. Amen. Amen. So firstly, mirage Christianity, the appearance of something, the promise of something, but then you get there. Now, I'm at risk in my life of mirage Christianity. We talked last week about St. Francis of Assisi and his quote, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. But we talked about the fact that actually he never said that, that that was much like Abraham Lincoln's quote of you can only believe 80% of what you read on the internet. And... Um, and <laughs> it takes a while and then you get it, yeah. Um, but but St. Francis of Assisi, in fact, was known as the fiery little preacher from Assisi. He said that to proclaim the gospel, obviously, by, by just definition, words are necessary. And, and, but what he did say, his order was sent out with the instructions that you must let your actions line up with your words. So I'm at risk, and why am I at risk of Mirage Christianity? Because actually, I find loving people pretty easy. I actually do find it relatively easy to see the best in people. And, and I'm, I find it easy, you might think differently from your perception of me, but to be pleasant to people. But that doesn't mean that people connect the dots, that that is because I follow Jesus. You see, I have to let my words match up with the way my actions are. Proverbs 18.24 says that if you show yourself friendly, that you'll have friends. So I find that people are generally pretty friendly to me because I'm pretty friendly to them. But that doesn't follow that then they know that I'm someone who loves Jesus. They don't necessarily connect the dots. That has to come through my words. They don't necessarily know that the only reason I'm a nice person is because of Jesus. If I, I might have been nice anyway. I don't know. <laughs> but when I think about what I struggled as, as a, with as an early Christian, it was gossip. So I can only assume that without Jesus, I would be a gossip right now. It, it was 
little un- little untruths, which are also known as lies. And so I can only assume that I would have had trouble telling the truth right now without Jesus. So you wouldn't have known that what I was telling you was 100% true and you wouldn't have known that I necessarily had your back because I was a gossip. So, so that's only because of Jesus. But there are plenty of nice people out there who don't know Jesus, who aren't gossip- gossips and who aren't liars. So you don't know that that's because of Jesus. I know because I knew me back then, but you don't know that. And so, so I need to let my words line up because if it's Mirage Christianity, they can see goodness, but when they get there, there's nothing for them to drink. I'm not connecting the dots for them. Colossians chapter four, verse five says, live wisely among those who are not believers. Tick, make the most of every opportunity. For me, this is my risk that I don't make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive. Tick, so that you will have the right response for everyone. For me. Because I don't always have that right response that follows up with that. 1 Peter 3. You might say, Bron, you're a preacher. Surely you can do this. I'm telling you, I struggle as much as anyone else. I struggle. I was so proud of my son yesterday. He went and played football um, down on the central coast. And he got in the car. He'd been concussed. He said, did I have a good game? And um, we said, yeah, mate. It was a great game. He said, oh, I can't remember. And he just flicked from subject to subject, which is not like Lockie. He was all over the place. And then he started crying in the car, which is not like Lockie. He just was, his moods were all over the shop. He was very concussed. And um, he said, you'll be proud of me, mum. Last night, they all watched a movie and there was a sex scene in it. And so I walked out. And I came back in and they said, Lockie, you missed the sex scene. And I said, good. And they said, why is that good? And he said, because I'm a Christian. And, um, and they, yeah, I was like, my son. And, um, and he said, I said, what'd they say? He said, you don't want to know. <laughs> he said, I can't repeat it. And, um, and, but he, my son at 15 years old is better at that than me. And I praise God for that. Like Mark said to me this morning, when your kids do better than you, it's a joy to your heart. I got a bit distracted. Okay, 1 Peter 3. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. So the good news for us as a church is that we're going to equip ourselves to explain it. But there's still that... There's still that stepping out. I believe that now I finally can explain it. There was the longest time that if someone asked me, you know, what does your church believe? I go, oh, we're a bit like the Baptists, but I guess not so much like the Catholics. And they're like... I don't even know what you're saying right now. Now I could articulate that I believe in Jesus Christ and what he's done for me on the cross. I could articulate that in a way that made sense to them. But, but it's still that stepping out to help them connect the dots. Always be ready. And I love that it says there, if someone asks you, I'd love to wait until somebody asks me, frankly, but I'm not let off the hook because in Romans 10 it says, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. But not everyone welcomes the good news. For Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? So therein I find my problem. Because by being a nice person, if someone rejects me for that, that's on them. But when I tell them I'm a Christian and they're rejected, well, really, it's not on me, it's on Jesus. He says that. They don't hate you, they hate me. But I feel rejection in that. But it says, so faith comes from hearing, that is hearing the good news about Christ. It's in the hearing, so it's in the telling. 
And we don't want to be mirage Christians where people see some goodness in us, but when they get up close, they're not getting given that life-giving water and the only life-giving water that there is, is Christ. So let's have the goods, church. And let's, let's make it our aim this year to move from mirage Christianity to being life-giving wells of water, watering holes, watering holes. Let's not have anyone say, what's so special about a water hole, but to know what's special about the water hole that we have. Okay, secondly, Mara Christianity. Mara Christianity, the children of Israel got to a place and called it Mara because the water was too bitter to drink. Three days, you know, after three days of no water, you actually start dying. And so three days wandering in the desert, their bodies have started to tip into that place of dying and then they find water. So all of a sudden, yes, can you imagine them racing down to the water's edge and beginning to slurp that water and immediately reviled because it's too bitter to drink. Have you ever had salty water? There was an iridologist in Tamworth who just prescribed everyone salty water to drink. And they decided, oh, you've got gout, salty water. You've got arthritis, salty water. <laughs> Everything was salty water. And, then, and so there was a while there that lots of people were putting salt in their water and drinking it. Ugh, it's so bitter. It's so awful. You, you, your body, you, your stomach, I don't think, can handle it. There's something about it that it, it, it reflexes. Bear Grylls had a remedy for it, but we won't go into that this morning. You see, the water was bitter. And this morning, you are the medium. There's nothing wrong with the water, but it's what it's flowing through that might have an impact. And in this place, in, in, in this area, you've got what's known as the Great Bitter Lake and the Small Bitter Lake. And people don't know if that's where the waters of Mara were or they're, they're just the brackish fountains that are everywhere in that region. It's because of the salinity of the basin that's in that region. And so the water was fresh, but the salinity of the basin affected the water. And um, in that region is the Suez Canal. And in 1967, starting with the Six-Day War, the canal was blocked off for eight years. And, um, and so that caused the salinity of the water to just massively increase because now there was no free-flowing through that place. And so the medium got saltier and saltier, which then affected the water as it got saltier and saltier. There's nothing wrong with the water in us, church, but water is always affected by the medium that it's in. So you are the medium, I am the medium. And we read about a medium in a little book of Ruth, which is kind of wedged between Joshua, where there's a military campaign, and then Judges, where there's a theocracy and there's leadership rising up to help out the people of Israel and establish them. And then this little, this little transition book before we head into, you know, the autocracy that starts with Saul in, in 1 Samuel, etc. and that transition. And in Ruth, it's a, a great little book, a great little story. It's a great one for Valentine's Day, actually. Um, so go home and read that. Um, but, but, but I'm not talking about Ruth this morning. I'm talking about Naomi. Naomi had moved from her hometown, her home place of Bethlehem and gone to Moab because there was a famine. She'd gone with her husband and two sons. And this book where God chooses love over legislation, it's a, it's a beautiful book, but, but tragedy strikes with Naomi. Firstly, her husband Elimelech dies, then her son Marlon and Kilion after she'd um, found wives among the Moabite people. And in Ruth chapter 1, 
she goes back to Bethlehem. There's a whole backstory we won't go into. It. I'm just going to read from Ruth chapter one. It says, so the two of them, this is Ruth and Naomi, continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me. Now, there's nothing wrong with the stages of grief. And Naomi was going through that. There's nothing wrong with everything that you go through and you have to grieve. But it should never become your name. You should never rename yourself from the pleasant one, which is what Naomi meant, to Mara, the bitter one. This woman who was loved by the people, the women, and everyone was excited to see her. And she says, no, no, my whole, everything about me has changed. I'm now bitter because of these events that have taken place. So what about you? When people strike you, are they like Psalm 34 verse 8, which is taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who find refuge in Him. Or do they find someone whose receptacle has become bitter and tainted the waters that are within? You all probably have a Christian friend who you don't want your non-Christian friends to meet. <laughs> don't look at them. <laughs> You're like, I don't, want, I don't want them to meet that person. I don't want them to hear all the conspiracy theories <laughs> that they're going to hear if they meet that Christian friend. Or I don't want them to hear the judgment that they're going to hear if they listen to that Christian friend. Or I don't want them to hear the gossip that they're going to hear from that Christian friend. But then we've all got that Christian friend we're like, oh, I hope my friend can meet this person. They're just such a great ambassador for the gospel of Jesus. We've all got those friends. I wish they could just meet that person. Well, what's us? What are we as we reflect inwardly? As we be watering holes, what are we being? What's your propensity? I loved our Connect Group leaders gathering on Monday night. It was so much fun. Just a great bunch of people that you've got here willing to stick their necks out and look after you all. And uh, we asked the question, in your connect group, what's your propensity? And people were very honest. Ah, I talk too much. And everyone around them nodded. <laughs> I pray too long. Henry nodded. <laughs> it was so great. It was vulnerability. Oh, it was supposed to be confidential. Dang it. Sorry, guys. <laughs> But it was, uh, it was great fun. And people just owned their propensity. So, so church, as, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, what's your propensity? What does your receptacle have the propensity to be tainted with? Is it gossip? Is it negativity? Does the beautiful, living, life-giving water get filtered through this whinging, complaining, moaning receptacle that taints the taste of what comes out the other side? What is it that taints your receptacle? Let's be aware and let's submit it to Jesus. Let's not be those of Mara Christianity. What makes a difference? It is, obviously, for the people of Israel, there was a lump of wood that Moses threw into the water. And I don't know what that wood was. Even in the Talmud, which is like the Jewish um, equivalent of their commentary on Scripture, through thousands of years, they don't know what that... There's speculation around what that wood that got thrown into the water was. They don't know. But I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think it was science that there was this wood that caused the water to then be sweet. Although it wouldn't matter if it was. God made science, so that doesn't bother me at all. But I think it was miraculous. I think that 
God used the obedience of Moses, said, throw that lump of wood into the water. And Moses, rather than going, well, what's that going to do, God? Just did what God said, and it made the water sweet. And I believe it was a shadow of what was to come because there was another lump of wood that was fashioned into a cross that made our waters sweet as well. There was another lump of wood that marked pre-Christ and post-Christ where everything before was bitter and we didn't know what to do with it with a cross that said, I can make sense of your suffering and I can turn it around for good. And all of a sudden there was life-giving water flowing through our lives. I can believe that that was a shadow, just like the ram caught in the thicket, just like Boaz and Ruth, that he redeemed Naomi's legacy and line and everything and caused everything good to come from everything that was bad, that that's where the cross is for us. So if that's the difference to making a water of Elim, where there are 12 springs and 70 palm trees in the middle of a desert, then what does that look like? Well, I'm going to cause this, I'm going to call it, Majestical Christianity, majestical Christianity, where there's waters that flow and people want to come and pitch their tent by there. Not because we're popular, no, but because there's something that they find there that's fresh and revitalizing and life-giving. And if you're not a Christian here this morning and you go, that is not my experience of Christians, I'm sorry. If you're a Christian this morning, you go, that's not my experience of Christians. Amen. Probably you too, hey? (laughs) At times, let's have grace for it. None of us are perfect. But I've got three things for majestical Christianity. Those of you who don't know what majestical means, maybe you saw Hunt for the Wilder People and little Ricky Baker and Hector were having the conversation as they topped a ridge in New Zealand and looked over the New Zealand wilderness and Hector said, it's majestical, isn't it? Little Ricky Baker said, that's not a word. And Hector said, it is. And he said, no, nah, it's majestic. And he said, majestical sounds heaps better. But actually, Ricky Baker was wrong and Hector was right. Majestical is a word and this is what it means. It means displaying majesty. Imagine if we had majestical Christianity that displayed majesty. And there's three things, fire, flow, and friendly. Number one, fire. Flow, actually. We'll go with flow instead. John chapter 7. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. But church, now Jesus has, and now you and I have the Holy Spirit of the living God flowing through us. And it's in vitally connected to that flow, the flow of the Holy Spirit through us, that He cleans out the dross, that He cleans out the sediment at the bottom of our hearts. And He says, I want the receptacle to be beautiful and fresh. I want love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control to be the hallmarks of your life as the Holy Spirit flows through you. The flow of the Holy Spirit. We need flow for majestical Christianity. We can't do this on our own. We cannot. You can try. You will get tired. You can try, you will get narky. Ronnie, not you, but everyone else in this room will get narky and mean if we just try to do it on our own and tired. We need the flow of the Holy Spirit. Connected to the flow. Like I said, that Suez Canal, when it was blocked off, the flow stopped, the salinity increased. The propensity for muck to get in the bottom of our hearts if we're not connected to the flow is real. And so why not just surrender to God? Surrender all the gunk, 
surrender all the sediment. Imagine right now, imagine your heart. Imagine your heart as a, as a receptacle, as a watering hole. And imagine there's something at the bottom of your heart that you've just allowed to settle at the bottom. And you, you know it's there, but it's, you know, there's all this fresh water on top that seems good. But you, I want you to imagine a mighty flood just coming down and being so forceful that it cleans everything out from the bottom of your heart, everything that's not meant to be there, and all that's left is fresh, flowing, living water. Who wants that? Yes, please, Jesus. Amen, amen, amen. Romans 4, I'll just read the last verse. It says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. We may as well just do that willingly. <laughs> just get before him, say, God, clean it all out. And then flow, fire, fire. To know that this message is for real, that the message we have is for real. That's what makes the difference. That's what stirs us up. That's what is conviction. We're connected to the flow and we're convicted by the fire of the message. That that it's actually going to make a difference. That I have what is needed for people around me. Not in a weird Scientology way, but in a real way. I've got what is needed for those around me. I I don't know how long. There's no timer, so I, I think I'm out of time. Kerry, am I out of time? I'm good. Okay, cool. Okay. Let's, you know, I, this is not really a diversion. Maybe a little one. But... In the world that we live in, right, we are constantly, there's cancel culture. There, there's the less and less an ability to be able to say what we really think. There's less and less of an ability to be potent in the words that we say. And our words get more and more vanilla because we're trying not to offend different groups of people. I'm telling you right now that what is needed is a potent word of God. What is needed is actually a fire, a fire shut up on the inside like Jeremiah. I can't not speak it out. It's in my bones. I've got to speak it. And when it's just this, oh, I'm just trying to please everybody, it loses its potency. It actually does. It actually does us a disservice when we try to please everybody. We will not please everybody. We will get rejected. We will die for our faith, the Bible says. Okay, so offence is going to happen. We just have to be knowing that. All right. And then finally, friendly. 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 You might describe yourself as friendly, but would anyone else? Fire, follow, and friendly. The people of God are meant to be friendly. I'm just going to let that settle. (sighs) Friendly, love, joy, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, gentleness. We're supposed to be friendly. And I know what I just said about the need to not offend, to to be willing to offend people. But but we've always got to remember the tone of that. And I'll, I'll tell you right now that as much as, I believed in the good work of the Australian Christian lobby. I think that during the plebiscite, what lots of people heard was anger. And I don't want to be a church that's known for its anger. I want to be a church that's known for its love, that stands firm on the Word of God and is uncompromising, but loves the heck out of people in Jesus' name. Isaiah 58, 11 and 12. If we can live in majestical Christianity where there is a flow of the Holy Spirit, we're connected to that inner spring and that where there is a fire and a conviction of the message and that we're friendly, then 
may this be our story and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. So some questions. If I offended you, I'm sorry. If I didn't, I'm sorry. (laughs) Some questions just to finish this off. If you're the medium and you're going to work or you're at home or wherever you are, question to ask yourself, do you have anything against these people that you're with? Because they will feel that. What am I carrying with me? Fire, do I believe the message? Do I believe that it is life-changing? Do I believe that it is what is needed for the world? Is there anything poisoning the waters? Here's another question. Am I still connected to the flow? What does the taste say about the water that is in me? Would people describe me as friendly? (laughs) Fortunately, I would describe you all as friendly. And while the people around you say, well, you don't know them very well, (laughs) I'm happily ignorant. (laughs) So Lord, I just ask you right now, Lord, that you would create in us a watering hole. Lord, we, we think of that scripture that says that the living Word of God, powerful and active, living and active, separating between the thoughts and intents of the heart, Lord, able to lay us bare. Lord, we want to submit ourselves to that process right now. We don't want to be those who would happily spend the rest of our life with a half-baked Christianity that isn't fully sold out for you. Lord, we don't want to be mirage Christians where we've got the promise of something good, but we're not satisfying or satiating anyone's thirst. We want to be a flow of the Holy Spirit, rivers of living water, Lord, that goes to the very thing that's creating the thirst and makes that right in Jesus' name. Lord, don't let us be bitter. Lord, we submit ourselves to you and say, Lord, clean us out. Don't make us, don't let us be continually bitter or anything else that doesn't please you. But Lord, let us have fresh living water. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.